Okay, we're listening to Legal AF and Midas Touch, the latest. This is Trump smacked with smoking gun evidence of his threat to New York appeal. Oh! This is Michael Popak, Legal AF, after dark. Gaggle, gaggle, no, I'm not a turkey on Thanksgiving. I'm talking about two gag orders, one in New York, one in the District of Columbia, both up on appeal involving Donald Trump. And we have the oral argument coming up in the New York version of it with a new filing by the New York Attorney General submitting a captain in the Department of Public Safety who outlines, including 275 single-spaced pages of attacks on the judge and on the principal law clerk because of Donald Trump. Want to know more? Ben Micellis in one corner. Me, Michael Popak in the other. We join together in legal AF. And here's a clip. Before going back into speaking on the gag order in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case and how the filing before the appellate division was used in the Washington, D.C. appeal in the federal case of the gag order there, it's just worth noting for a second, Popak, you've practiced for over close to 30 years and you practiced in that courthouse um, in New York where Judge Ingoran sits. You've done a lot, a lot of civil cases, you know, in that specific courthouse. And the very fact that litigants go in there every single day and have very serious disagreements with each other. These are parties that detest each other, suing each other, family rivalries, people who, you know, corporate companies that hate other people. You got employees suing companies for serious misconduct. You got all of this stuff going on in this civil division that's in New York. And you don't hear about this unprofessional and just disgusting behavior. And you've got people who are always fed up on, you know, usually with the way a judge rules or if Ngoron ruled for the other side. Happens every single day, hundreds of times a day, thousands to tens of thousands of times a year in that courthouse. But our whole system is based on this good faith in the process, in the system, in the judiciary. And what Donald Trump has done his entire life is anything that relies on good faith, right? Whether it's contracts, whether it's our social contract that is our constitution, whether it is the unspoken rules that allow our courts to have the legitimacy, that's where lots of people looked at our system and was like, how are you? You just go along with good faith? And Trump and this MAGA movement came along and they were like, nope, we're ripping it apart. We don't care what it says. We don't care what the contract says. We don't care what the Constitution says. We're going to attack you and you and you. We're going after all of you. And that's just something that our system actually struggles to contain. And so while there was just this administrative stay of the gag order that's now subject to this appeal in an Article 78 proceeding in New York, which is where that affirmation by the public safety officer and the solicitor general's filing talking about all the threats to Judge Ngoron and Judge Ngoron's clerk, all of that was filed. But like even the appeals court now, the appellate division, has to really kind of struggle with the fact that, well, we have the First Amendment, which says Donald Trump can post a photo, and he's just posting a photo, 
of the law clerk. And so without getting the 275 page single spaced affirmation and learning about the totality of circumstances of how Donald Trump operates, you can see a judge or a justice sitting in an appellate level saying, but what's the issue here? Until they get the voluminous filing of this is causing copious threats every single day. And that's what Trump and this MAGA movement is doing to our judicial system. And that is where, you know, the judge, when he first made the order, lifting the gag order on an administrative basis, doesn't have that record. He's just like, I just see a photo. What's the issue of Trump posting a photo? The issue is the modus operandi here of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I liked I liked that a lot. The social contract is really, really important to me. I operate in a certain way. And so do you because we were raised with morals and values. And I entered a sacred oath as an attorney to uphold as an officer of the court, the ethics and to make sure that there's the fair administration of justice from my end. There's a reason I don't wear my pajamas or a smoking jacket into court and ask the person in the black robe to move over because I've decided to sit on the bench today. I guess I guess I could do that. It would be a one shot deal. And then I'd be asked to go meet the bailiff with my toothbrush. But um, I would never think to do this. I I've, I've did the math while you were doing some of your, your rundown there. I think I've appeared in front of over 125 judges and arbitrators in my career. I've never seen what's happened with Donald Trump in my entire career, except once. One, and I, I won't name the person for the matter, but in an arbitration, my opponent decided at the beginning of the trial to use his beginning minutes of his opening statement to completely bash the arbitrator, calling him incompetent and prejudiced and not fair and balanced and not impartial and never having ruled in favor of a person like his client before in his entire, this guy was in his seventies. He was almost a semi-retired lawyer at that point. And I sat back cause I knew this lawyer and I sat back thinking this is either genius or insanity, and I'm not sure what I'm watching yet. I was like, I've, I've, I've always had to like muffle a smile because um, I knew this was going to backfire, and it did. Um, he didn't win <laughs> at all, and there's a reason you don't do these things. I, I am, I have not agreed with every judge I've been in front of. I've been frustrated in front of some judges. It's been reported in the media that I've been frustrated with some judges during trials, <laughs> where I sort of put my head in my hands, and the media caught it, but. I would never, never cross the line to be abusive to the judge, the staff, a clerk, a court reporter, a sheriff, a deputy sheriff, an investigator, an FBI agent, anybody like that. If I can't win my case in terms of my advocacy and being respectful and being a part of the social contract, then I don't want to win my case and I don't want to be a part of that profession. Soon these lawyers that are doing these things in the civil case, I think that's your point you're making too. This isn't even about this isn't even about Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. going to jail. This is about Donald Trump stroking a check and his lawyers are acting this way. And these lawyers may not be acting this way for much longer. As I said on one of my hot takes, first of all, they're the third string for Donald Trump, which is pretty low. Varsity already got fired, lost their bar licenses or are uh, indicted or now convicted, pled guilty. Junior varsity, same thing. I don't even know what, this is the scrub team. And all they're doing is risking their bar license for what purpose? To make the extra buck 
you know, so they can go to that that MME fighting thing with Donald Trump. They just love being in the company <laughs> of Donald. It's so weird. I've never seen it before, this conflation between the lawyer and his client. I get that Chris Keiss has no other clients. I mean, it's a, he just went out and left a law firm to represent Donald Trump. I'm sure he hasn't been out pounding the pavement to get new clients lately. And and Todd Blanche, the same thing. He left his law firm to represent Donald Trump. I don't think I haven't seen him represent one other person since then. So I get it. And and Alina Hava had some little tiny firm, and you did a great hot take about she and her husband owe millions of dollars in tax liens because they don't pay their taxes. I mean, that's a perfect lawyer for Donald Trump. In, in the in the courtroom itself, they are losing. And you and I and Karen have done hot take after hot take in legal AF episode after legal AF episode for the seven weeks the trial's been going on in the civil fraud case. They are, uh, here's a newsflash for those that are crossing over to watch us as part of our audience. Donald Trump is losing his civil fraud case badly, not just because of the witnesses that the attorney general put on in her case, but because of the witnesses Donald Trump has put on in his own case. The evidence is strongly against Donald Trump to prove that his company wasn't a just a fraudulent house of cards for all of this time in which he was able to overbar borrow money he wasn't entitled to, get loan approvals he wasn't entitled to, get insurance he wasn't entitled to, get permits and 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 deals approved that he wasn't entitled to during that period when he was a mere billionaire and not a triple billionaire. And that's what this whole case is about. They are going to lose. And when they get one little victory, like, oh, Justice David Friedman, he said no gag order for two weeks. Then they go out and completely try to, you know, cause credible bodily harm to the to the law clerk and to the judge in the interim, hoping that no one else will notice. John Sauer says in his filing the District of Columbia, an irrelevant set of facts about what's going on in New York. In a relevant set of facts, a judge being subject to an assassination attempt because of comments made by Donald Trump when he wasn't gagged, that's, that is the height of relevancy. And so this, the, the thing that we're watching that we can segue into the, the New York attorney general thing, I'll set it up and turn it back to you. So you've got the gag order in New York is even more limited than the one that, that Tanya Chuck and Judge Chutkin issued for Donald Trump. In, in the D.C. one, it's don't use violent rhetoric against these participants in the criminal justice system and don't target them. In the, in Chutkin and, uh, and Goron, in the New York civil fraud case, it's even more limited. It's very specific. Stop attacking my staff and my law clerk. That's it. You, they can't even pull that off. That shows you how dastardly and despicable they are as lawyers. They can't even stop attacking the poor defenseless law clerk who's a member of the New York bar, I'd like to remind them, and could be a future judge that they'll have to all appear in front of one day. They're bashing her mercilessly, causing potentially bodily and grievous harm to her and the judge as well during this period because they're losing in the courtroom. And this one judge, Judge Friedman, I'll leave it on this, turn it back to you. Judge Friedman is the same judge that temporarily, administratively, interimly stayed the trial before the trial even began on a request by Donald Trump. But by the time the full panel of the appellate division of which he joined four other people, they totally vacated his order and ruled against him and let the trial go forward. So just because they got David Friedman in a one hour hearing without the benefit of Captain Holland's affidavit about all of the, uh, all of the bad things that have gone wrong and the increased threat assessment 
that it, that has happened to these members of the judiciary and their staff it was not in front of them they didn't have any they didn't have any evidence in front of them they had whatever the gag order was and whatever the lawyers on their feet could come up with on an emergency hearing that was called at the last minute down at the appellate division courthouse that's all they had with full briefing I, I would be shocked if this appellate division wants to send the message to to this Donald Trump or future Donald Trumps that you are free to abuse our judges and law clerks and we won't do a darn thing about it. What do you think will happen, Ben, if that's the message that's sent about the, 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 the court system in New York? You will have a full revolt of all of the trial judges. Right. It's not just Judge and Goran. You have all of the trial judges in New York watching this. And they're thinking to themselves, if you allow lawyers to go against what the judge is saying in the court, you are going to destroy, as I said before, that social contract that exists, but more narrowly, the rules that govern just the basic decorum and functioning of a courtroom. And you're going to make all of our judges, trial judges, targets of death threats. All the message you're going to send is all litigants can cite your opinion, judge, and can say, look at what Judge Friedman said. Judge Friedman says attacks are okay on trial judges. Go for it. And that will be cited as precedent for that. That's why one of the things that I thought was very powerful that Judge Ngoron actually did in opposing uh, this uh, uh, temporary lifting of the gag order is that Ngoron actually got involved in the opposition. And you had people on behalf of Ngoron going through the threats that Ngoron faces, that his law clerk faces every single day. Because that wrecked the public safety officer talking about the death threats, to your point before, Popak, the 275 pages, single space that listed all of the threats that have taken place since October 3rd, basically, caused by Donald Trump and Trump's lawyers' behavior, and says, okay, appellate division, Here's the record. If you're going to say this is okay, you're going to single-handedly destroy the ability of trial judges to conduct business in the state of New York. David Friedman was appointed to the appellate division back in 1999 by a Republican New York governor, George Pataki. Again, what he did was administrative, but like, and it's not like a full lifting of the gag order. But as I've said before in some of the hot takes, you could see a scenario where an, an appellate judge, an appeals judge, gets a, gets this record before them and goes, well, what's wrong? It's just a photo. It's just this. It's just that. But that's why here in Goron, the court staff, the public safety officers made sure to give this full record of all of the death threats that have happened. There's an example of what we do every week, twice a week on Legal AF, the leading podcast at the intersection of law politics and justice wednesdays i do it with karen friedman ignifolo saturdays i do it with ben mycellus we're all practicing trial lawyers and we all bring it here one place exclusively the midas touch network if you know all about legal af welcome back we appreciate you send that clip on to friends and family and others and get them to join the movement if you don't know what the heck i'm talking about what is the midas touch network what is legal af welcome that's an example. We curate a podcast at the intersection of law, politics, and justice twice a week. 
that's a clip from it. If you liked it, you're going to love what we do in a day in and day out. We're up to episode over 600 in our body of work and in hot takes every day, every hour by the leaders of Legal AF. Until my next hot take, until my next Legal AF, this is Michael Popak. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. <clears throat> what are you waiting for, indeed? She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Instagram. Latest Midas Touch clips. Toxic mech ideology finally exposed. It's ugly. Okay, this is two weeks ago, but it's politics girl. Politics girl exposing the MAGA playbook. Leaders in the Republican Party are pushing agendas which are incredibly violent, economically, politically, and socially violent against women, people of color, against other men. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's podcast is a candid conversation with Mark Green, co-founder of Think Play Partners, senior editor for The Good Men Project, founder of Remaking Manhood, and author of the groundbreaking Little Me Too book for men. Mark is a writer, speaker, and coach who deals with the challenges men face being raised in what he calls man-box culture. Mark has spent over a decade writing and speaking on masculinity, and he claims two questions remain at the center of his work. Why do so many men simply accept the deep loneliness that informs their lives? And what is the link between men's disconnection with others and their ongoing abuse and violence against women and members of traditionally minority and marginalized communities? Our culture is literally littered with the fallout of unhappy men looking to assert their dominance. From the tantrums of our last president to the daily mass shootings to the broad resurgence of patriarchal male dominance, men are not doing okay, and they are making it everyone else's problem. I'm having Mark on today to talk about how strategists behind the conservative movement and mega movement are looking to weaponize every aspect of the culture wars, including our culture of masculinity, to their benefit, and what we as a culture can do about it. Both the health of our men and the health of our society need help, because clearly this isn't working. So without further ado, please welcome founder of Remaking Manhood, author, writer, and coach, Mark Green. Welcome back, Mark. It's great to be here. Oh, well, we've chatted about toxic masculinity, man box culture, and how the patriarchy holds us back before. And if you guys didn't hear the conversation Mark and I had when he was last on the show in July of 2022, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it because we touched on a ton of important topics, but particularly how detrimental it's been for men to live within this kind of hierarchical pecking order culture where they have to perform within this sort of painfully narrow set of ideas about what a real man is. And if they don't live up to it or prove it to their manhood, particularly to each other, they end up feeling isolated or marginalized by our culture when the reality is that's a false idea. And this idea of what a man is in general is actually the thing that's isolating them from the society. Mm. So if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen. 
Yeah, I think we're all done here. Thank you. That, that was fine. <laughs> no, we're having a totally different conversation today. And I, there's so much that you say that I, I don't want people to miss out on. But I also don't want to repeat it for my, my guests that do listen every, you know, people that listen every week. I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, no, I loved that episode with Mark. Um, one of my best friends, Beth, she's raising a boy right now. And she was like, I loved that episode. I learned so much about how to be a better mother of a boy in a society like this. So I don't want to duplicate, but I do want people not to miss it. Well, it's important to know also that we're... You, me, your friend, we're raising sons. So yeah. this is not some, some, this people say, well, why are women in the, in the masculinity conversation? Well, they're raising sons. They're, some yeah. they're married to men. I mean, it's fascinating that, um, that we're actually trying to get stuff that we can apply actually apply to the process of being parents or partners exactly i mean that's the thing people are always i was saying to you earlier that you know people are always all over my son because he doesn't fit in to the traditional man box if you look at my child he looks like it the very first thing you say to him is what's your sport bro that's the thing that everyone says to him because he's six one he's like really athletic looking and he's an actor He's a singer and an actor, and uh, and he doesn't fit into that particular box that people want to put him in, and then they don't know what to do with that. What a narrow world to, to sort of come at people with expectations instead of viewing people as something, as a huge discovery, like this person I don't know anything about yet, but who knows what's going to emerge out of this uh, connection I'm making right now. It's like, it's like a Christmas present, right? You don't know what's in it, but we, we're like, Oh, give me the same Christmas present 20 times under the tree. The same exact thing. I want GI Joe on 20, all the same, the same wrapping, same everything. I don't understand why people strip up the adventure of being human out of their lives in that way. Yeah. And particularly men get it stripped out of there. You know, I think women are allowed to have a far more vast emotional life than men are, are allowed to in this particular society. And I mean, that's the thing that I'm having you on today, right? Like for millions of men, our culture has taught them to suppress their emotions and their empathy and their connections to others to yep. kind of fit into this acceptable frame of what a man is. And like look no further than Josh Hawley's book that came out this year called Manhood, right? I mean, talk about performative. I mean, basically our culture is weeding out and shaming all the qualities that would allow men to create these healthy, authentic personal relationships and that ends up isolating them. Um, so they're left with very little choice, but to sort of embrace what you're talking about, this kind of top down domination based masculinity that our culture has always favored. And that version of masculinity is filled with all these rules, right? These rules that determine everything from how men are supposed to walk and talk to what they're supposed to talk about and what they're supposed to do for a living and, and the way that the responsibilities are as a man in society, even in their marriages, what the man's job is, what the woman's job is. And it's all a really narrow set of parameters. And we can see it kind of falling apart these days. We can see women pushing back. We can see society pushing back. And as you've said, we're basically forcing men into some sort of public performance of what a man is, which is more often than not completely void of any emotion or real connection. And then we're wondering why it's not working. Hmm. Wondering why we're all feeling deeply isolated. And, you know, I want to, <laughs> since you brought up Josh Hawley, I want to make a <laughs> distinction here between uh, what is a long-standing retrogressive, it goes back generations, set of ideas about how to be a man, and then the intentional weaponization of those ideas politically. So uh, on one end, you have this historical, contextual idea of masculinity, which is originally born out of uh, the Industrial Revolution, when men were pulled out of the family farms and out of 
all day long, daily contact with their children and their partner and put on the factory floor and then handed a paycheck, right? And told, basically, you do what you're told here and you can control your family and make your choices there. The ideas of the man box uh, originally conceived by a guy named Paul Kibble include the following. Um, don't show your emotions except anger. Uh, be a breadwinner, not a caregiver. Be tough, never ask for help. Love that one. That's right where the lack of mental health care for men shows up. Don't ask for help. Um, have lots of sex. Talk about cars, sports, or women if you talk to other men, but don't talk about anything deep. Be heterosexual, never homosexual. And have control over women and girls. And, that, and, and he, got the, he got this list by going around to high schools in the early 1980s and just asking boys, what are the rules for being a man? And I'll re tell this list to people now, guys, and, and guys in the audience will put their hand up. They go, that, that part about controlling women and girls, we, nobody believes that anymore. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Equimundo did a study in 2017. And one of the questions, it's called the man box. You can download it. Just go online, the man box, PDF, download it, read it. It's full of deep research about these issues for men in Mexico, the United States, and Great Britain. One of the questions in the study asked of men in all those three countries around 2017 was the following one. If a guy has a girlfriend or wife, he deserves to know where she is at all times. Now, that's not keeping her safe. That's not caregiving. That's control. Absolutely. And when you ask men which country you think had the highest percentage and what do you think that percentage was of men agreeing with that statement? So yes, no, saying yes, I agree with this. I should be able to know where my girlfriend is at all times. Uh, it's not Mexico and it's not Great Britain. It's the U.S. And the percentage of men who agreed with the statement is 46%. So we have that level of men who still view this idea of having power over women and girls as central to how we define our masculinity. That's the long tail of our culture of masculinity. But we begin to see how it was weaponized by the Republican Party, beginning back during the Reagan administration, when they began this drumbeat narrative about deeply individualizing bootstrap, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you haven't done it by yourself, you know. And all of that language plays exactly into this hierarchical idea of masculinity, which is that we're all in, in a pecking order and a rat race and, and competition against each other. And anything that smacks of community or cooperation it is considered to be feminine or effeminate. But when you talk about them starting to beat the drum about individualizing and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, language in the Reagan administration, it served a specific purpose, which was to undermine social programs and to begin attacking welfare mothers and all these other proven to be wrong ideas that got embedded in American politics, which was basically to have contempt for the social structure and the social system. And as we come forward to today, you've got Josh Hawley essentially making a case for that retrogressive old school idea, the gender binary idea that men go to work and women stay in the home, that whole idea, which is essentially designed to take women out of politics and out of the workplace and push them back into uh, this domestic role, which disempowers them and keeps them from challenging conservative men. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's exactly what's going yeah, you're on. Not I mean, doing, I, you're, you're not doing it right, Lee. I'm you're, not you're, doing it right. I'm not doing it right. I do do half of my work from my kitchen, though. You know, so there's a number of men that will always be like, stop talking to make me a sandwich, you know. But I think it's so funny because this idea that people are like, oh, no one's controlling women anymore. And I'm like, 
uh, we're literally stripping women of their rights across the country right now. Like that is happening yeah. right now from one political party. It's not, a, it's not an easy case to make anymore for them because they're actually making it illegal to get in your car and drive somewhere. Yeah, they're actually doing it. And I think the thing is, is that this concept of it's a zero sum game, that our society is a zero sum game. Like if there's going to be, if you're going to be a winner, that means there has to be losers. We can't all win, which is why we can't have social programs and we can't help each other and have a social safety net because only the people who are worth it, you know, are going to make it. And we have to hold those people up because they're the winners of our capitalistic society. And I always think it's interesting because it's not just individualism. It's rugged individualism. That's the American way. And that's a very masculine word, rugged individualism. It's not asking how, women How does that play out in a up. family? How does that yeah. play out in a family? Oh, I'm the rugged individualist and you're the wife or the child. So you have to do whatever I decide we're going to do. That, that doesn't, that's not just at a, at a cultural level. That's right down to our individual relationships. And it's why men are A, deeply isolated and B, why their marriages are faltering and failing because we come in with this authoritarian idea of men as leaders of the family, right? So any of these ideas you see happening at the cultural level or in politics are going to play out in our marriages, in our partnerships, in our child relationships. It's going to play out right there. Right. And you're talking about authoritarianism in the family, but that's probably why we're now seeing an entire political party that's leaning towards authoritarianism because they believe in that in general. They like that idea of top-down behavior. They like that idea of domination. They're now, I would say that the MAGA Republicans particularly are almost reliant on domination now, right? Like it's something you've said is one of their defining values is dominance. And I think until we understand that, we don't really understand the threat that that party is forcing us to face. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to just step back for a second and help folks who, who may be new to this conversation understand what's going on with boys and men, because the idea that boys and men are born into the world wanting hierarchy is absolutely disproven by a ton of research. In fact, it's, it's enforced on them beginning at an early age, and there's two bodies of work that are really important, um, research by Judy Chu and research by Niobe Way. Niobe Way wrote a book called Deep Secrets, and she had a single simple question for boys in early adolescence, and that was, what does your best friend mean to you? When we talk about boys and men as being emotionally disconnected and reactive and authoritarian and all this stuff, it's born out of what happens in, in childhood for boys. And Niobe Wave's research, she says, what do your best friends mean to you? And in early adolescence, boys say, one, I love my best friend. They use the word love unashamedly. And the second thing they say is that without my best friend, I would go crazy because they're having these incredibly intimate uh, sharing conversations. They're literally processing their experience of being human with their best friend. Then later in adolescence, four years later, she goes back and interviews the same boys and they're saying, yeah, my best friend Mikey lives around the corner, but I don't see him that much anymore. Um, another kid said, yeah, that, that, that relationship, it's kind of on a, on a fade out. And when she did uh, the research to find out what was driving this, it was the culture of masculinity, the dominance-based culture of masculinity, hammering away at these boys until they stop caring about who they are authentically and start worrying about proving what they're not, which based on her research is they want to prove they're not little kids, they're not girly, and they're not gay. And in that moment, they disconnect from those friendships in late adolescence, and our son's suicide rates become four times that of girls. 
we're literally tearing them loose from the support structure of rich, connected friendships. And then we just slot them into this hierarchy of masculinity based on their status, size, family connections, whatever it is. And the message to them is, okay, here you are in a, in a rigid hierarchical system. Learn to dominate the men around you or be dominated. That's your two choices. And in that moment, we, can, we, we ensure their disconnection because you cannot have a real connected human relationship with someone who's dominating you or that you are above and having power over. So boys and men then enter into lifetimes of deep social isolation, which, as I've said the last time we spoke, is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So men start having heart attacks, cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases much earlier than they otherwise should. And that's the system that's creating these reactive, angry, dominance-based men that make up the MAGA movement, the, the generation of boomers that are driving the Fox News narratives. All of that is playing out in attacks on women, people of color, LGBTQ, because when a man is living in that system, he's fraught with anxiety all the time that a guy's going to call him out, that he's going to get caught. Because all of us as men have to take huge parts of who we are authentically and hide them, right? Maybe I'm kind to my um, partner. I'm not going to admit that to the guys at the bar because they're going to call me whipped. Maybe I'm gay. And I'm not going to admit that to certain men in my life because they're going to get on me about that. So depending on how big the secrets are that I'm hiding and we're all hiding something, then we have this anxiety that we have to suppress parts of who we are as human beings. And that's trauma inducing. Naomi Way says if you have to pretend you have no emotions, i.e. that you're invulnerable, that's trauma inducing. And all the issues that men deal with after that come out of that trauma. I mean, it feels like we're breaking our boys early. In our Very society, early, right? Earlier than even adolescence, Judy Chu, the other person I mentioned, did research in a pre-K class, and she was with a, for two years. She was with boys and girls, and four and five-year-old boys and girls, and she said that uh, beginning very early, boys are already hiding their emotional acuity and their ability to read and respond to emotions because and, and taking on the sort of stoic masculine performance the culture uh, puts on them. And there's a little boy, four-year-old boy, comes to her in, as part of this process. And he says, Miss Chu, I'm friends with all the girls in the class, but don't tell Mike, the head of the boys club, because if he finds out I'm friends with the girls who kick me out of the boys club and I won't have a club anymore. So you got a four-year-old boy who's already hiding authentic aspects of who he is. And it's bad enough that he doesn't get to be in relationship across difference, in this case, gender, and connect with girls as he grows older and learns to do that nuanced kind of connection across difference. But when boys start hiding who they authentically are at age four because they already know who the alpha is, quote alpha, that's a terrible term, who the bossy kid is in their cohort, then that begins a pattern for men where we hide our voices, hide our responses, hide our reactions, which is what gives us this millions and millions of men in the so-called movable middle who are silent right now. They may not agree with the extremist stuff that the MAGA are doing, or they may not agree with what the bully at the water cooler says at their workplace about some woman who works there, but they don't say anything because they've been bullied and trained out of speaking from anything authentic. And instead, they're all worried about aligning with this particular idea of what it means to be a man because they know that if they fail 
that bully's going to come after them. You talked about your son uh, being artistic, being a performer, and people saying, what's up with that, right? And, and often the asking... The amount of times people ask if he's gay, he's mm-hmm. not remotely gay. And that's the first thing they say. And I think, why would you say that? What a peculiar thing to say. So this is the water we swim in, Lee. This, this yeah. is the part that I try to get people to grasp. There's two things here that are really crucial. One is... When we look at men and say, why are men behaving in these ways, which includes being sexist in the workplace, uh, you know, fighting for laws that disempower women, all the stuff that on the, you know, the the meta scale, but in the micro scale, just the daily interactions that feel like this guy just doesn't get me and he's not even trying. When we talk about that whole system, what we're talking about is an idea of masculinity, which takes half of what it means to be human, which is to be creative, to be a caregiver, to be empathetic, all these things. And and we gender that as feminine. We say, oh, yeah, that's what girls and women do. That's why women are better at being parents and mothers and whatever. And then we take the other half, tough, strong, leader, and we gender that as masculine. And we shame all of those relational capacities out of our sons. We also so, shame those good those qualities out of women. We call them bossy and bitchy. Right, and leadership. They have, so, yeah, 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 yeah. And so in that moment, we're taking all of our children, male, female, non-binary, all of them, and we're tying one hand behind their backs for the rest of their lives. And this is what we do in, in men's work, and this is what we do when we're raising children in more relational ways. We bring all of those human capacities in, and we say, you have this side to yourself that you're born. I mean, we as human beings, since the dawn of time, have had rich, powerful capacities to form community and relationships. Do you think a tribe 10,000 years ago would have survived if every man was for himself only? They wouldn't have survived. This is part of what it means to be human. And somehow the industrial revolution and this technical world we've grown into has given us enough comfort, enough comforts and safety that we can then become individual, you know, a cult of individualism and become dismissive of the idea of community. But the Democratic Party right now, it represents community and connection. And and as as flawed as some parts of it might be, it is vastly superior to a culture that is authoritarian, hierarchical and dominance based. And the other thing I want to say about the Democratic Party is I hear people saying, well, you know, the Democrat, I'm like, has anybody seen what the Democratic Party is doing in the last five to 10 years, especially under Biden. We have a president now. You want to talk about community connection? Yeah, or talk about someone that is empathetic and kind. But that showed up on on a union picket line. Now that's collective labor. That's community. That's creating something that goes against this hierarchy. The, The Republican Party is essentially funded by people who want to break down the federal government's ability to tax and to regulate corporations. That's Senator Whitehouse talks about this so eloquently, right? Yeah. He talks about the idea that the attack on the SCOTUS wasn't really about all of these social issues. That just gets people motivated to vote in those ways. But once those folks got control of the SCOTUS, the one place where they have always consistently, one after another after another, Uh, followed the rules or the expectations of the funders of that movement have been when it comes to regulating corporations and taxing. And they know that that breaking down the right to vote is part of winning that battle. So you see some of that in there. But the long and short of it is we have to decide as as a country whether we want to stand together or, or fall 
divided. And this is the message that's coming out of the Republican Party is, screw everybody else, I got mine. And by the way, we have to roll women's rights back to the 1950s because they're getting out of hand. You know, I think the thing is, I think it's fair to say that the issues that impact boys and men's mental health, particularly their emotional well-being and their ability to connect with others, is the thing that's being used right now to drive this conservative anti-feminism, you know, anti-LGBTQ, reactive right-wing politics that we're seeing now across America. Like these boys' issues that we do to them in early childhood and tell them they have to fit into this certain box are becoming our political issues, right? Like... I look at the elevation of someone like the conservative Christian culture right now, from all the calls from the national abortion bans to talking about marrying child brides again to no-fault divorce, the book bans about anything that doesn't fit into an actual box of what they think old-school values are. And then I look at Mike Johnson and his like evangelical performative masculinity. And the fact that this new Speaker of the House's positions on everything from contraception to sex is so bigoted and so small-minded, you would think he would be way too extreme for 2023 America, but he's unanimously elected by his party because this is who the Republicans are now, and we have to stop pretending otherwise. Their party values no longer line up with the values of the majority of Americans, which is why they have to cheat and gerrymander and suppress votes, because if it was just the best idea wins, they would never win. And if I may, because I have you here, I find Mike Johnson incredibly interesting because he doesn't actually fit into the traditional alpha man box ideal. So his entire personality to me feels reactive, like he has embraced this far right conservative churchgoer persona and then gone over the top in his dominance to make up for it. Right. Like yeah. he does less Andrew Tate. He's sort of less Andrew Tate and more Ned Flanders, but he's using that Ned Flanders in this kind of very dominant way. And like, if you talk, if you see the interviews with him and his wife, he's got this really creepy, dominant father knows best thing. She's got this voice, which I now understand is called a fundy baby voice, which I did not know was a thing, but that's a fundamentalist voice for women where Christians like Kelly Johnson or Michelle Duggar talk like little girls so they appear sweeter and more subservient around their husbands and that just terrifies me because obviously this Duggar asshole and all of his children they made a ton of money off like just being terrible terrible parents but Mike Johnson is in charge of America's laws and our money and so there's a lot more at stake the way we're going right now. I'll also say that Mike Johnson and Kelly Johnson are in a covenant marriage, which is a marriage that's almost impossible to get a divorce from. And it's the kind of marriage conservatives want us all in when they talk about things like no-fault divorce. So there is this way of like, even if you don't quite fit into the box, you're going to find a way to fit into the box to dominate the rest of us. And I I think we really need to be calling it out when we see it. Well, when we we talk about leaders in the Republican Party, these are not like stereotypical alpha males. I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't, I can't see Mitch McConnell swinging through the trees, right? I just can't see it. And the Lindsey Graham, that, <laughs> Josh right, Hawley. Well, well, so we already know, we already know that a lot of closeted men um, lean into conservative politics as a way to maybe 
process some of their own shame too. They they've been shamed about their own. And this is understand that man box culture, as we describe it, dominant space masculine cultures shames men about their own authentic identities. That's how it operates. How can you get a Lindsey Graham uh, doing what he's doing? Uh, when he has been shamed into hiding authentic aspects of who he really is. And we know the guy flipped on Trump. Uh, it's not just shame in that case. There's also compromise or whatever's going on with those folks. But the fact of the matter is these leaders in the Republican Party are pushing agendas which are incredibly violent economically, politically, and socially violent against women, people of color, against other men. How do we fight this, right? How do we go? How do we go about this? Well, anyone listening today can understand that that it's a, a, a battle that happens on the political front. Donate your money, volunteer, show up, be there. But it's also a battle we're fighting on on the interpersonal, relational, social front. And one of the things to remember is that some percentage of men. I do a lot of work in corporations. I do a lot of work for organizations and I go into organizations these days and I say, Hey man, you know, what, what can I do? What, what kind of conversation do you want to have about these masculinity issues? And the DEI folks who are often women and often women of color will say, well, we, we want to try to shift how men are, are performing masculinity. And these man box rules show up in the workplace. There's an organization called catalyst that does work about what they call combative work cultures. They say that basically that men have this masculine anxiety in the workplace, and that is that they feel like they need to perform traditional masculinity at their jobs. And that, that's no accident. It's no different than, than in the rest of the world, right? There are other men in that workplace that are harassing them. But, but you get to the level of a combative work culture when that bullying is, is really overt in the workplace. That about 94% of men in the workplace that were polled said, yeah, we, that, that exists here. And then um, you have this combative culture where men are being bullied. And if the combative culture is at a high enough level, Men who would normally call out sexism in the workplace say they won't, they wouldn't do it. So we call this suppressing fire, right? This is happening in our politics. There's a reason why newscasters on Fox, Hannity and those guys, at some point about 25 years ago, took on the tone of bullies, took on the tone of dominant masculine culture, because it's all suppressing fire. I I don't agree with that guy, but I don't want to, I don't want to start it up with him. That can that runs through our heads, these millions of men in the middle, these silent men. And many of them say to themselves, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to challenge, you know, Frank, this manager guy at the cooler who just commented on some woman's body because I know Frank will come after me and I won't get on certain teams and, I'll, and it may cost me a raise and all that stuff. But I'm going to take care of the women in my family, make sure my daughters get to college. I'm going to look after the women in my circle to the best ability, but I'm not going to open my mouth. And in that moment, we lose because this bully gets to define the open, audible discourse. There may be six men standing there because no one opens their mouth. We presume that the five other guys sort of agree with him. When in fact, all of them may be running this silent tape, right? I'm not going to mess. I don't need this. But also, it won't work. The idea that we can look after our partners or our, our daughters, it will not work because sooner or later, they have to go out in the world. And who's there? Frank, that guy at the water cooler, Mike, Joe, all of these different bullies are going to be there. So men need to realize that this 
tipping point we're at around masculinity, this authoritarian, reactive masculinity that's driving Republican politics. Uh, and, and, and what we're talking about right now in the GOP, we have a different GOP than we had even 10 years ago. But it's, yeah. a, nat- it's a natural byproduct of what Roger Ailes started when he began the Fox News thing. It is a spiral. It's an accelerating authoritarian spiral. So every election cycle, they have to double down. They have to, they have to increase the level of authoritarian language and ideas. And, and it started kind of gently, you know, a little bit. And then you got Reagan. And then you got, you got Bush and Bush too. And- but Newt, you had Newt talking about people being their enemies. And oh, yeah. you know, he, he changed the culture in the House. He and did. now you see what happens in the House he where did. everyone is just truly a cruel, cruel bully on the Republican side. Yeah, but think about that, that marble game where it starts to accelerate going down. If you want to keep up and remain in that hierarchy of dominance, you have to exhibit dominance at the level of the men around you. So as soon as someone says, uh, you know, the COVID vaccine's fake, everybody had to double down on that. Everybody had to come to that level of crazy. And it's only getting worse. But at some point, it gets so accelerated that you can't pull out of it. And that's where we are with the GOP now. There is no, there is not going to be a way for the GOP to redeem itself because the GOP is in this competitive and every individual there. Some people say, yeah, they like doing the dominance. I would suggest something different. They're terrified of not keeping up with the dominance. They're terrified of not doing the dominance. Because what will yeah. happen is they'll get primaried. Uh, they'll get attacked. They know that this thing is spiraling out of control. They all feel it. And they're all in this anxiety-driven rush to say the next most extreme thing they can, which is why you have a guy got elected to Speaker of the House. Every Republican said, if I don't vote for, I've already taken issue with, with Jordan and these other folks, you know, I, I got to say yes now, I, or I'm going to get, I'm going to lose here. I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to drop a couple of notches and a couple of notches can be the end of your world. If you're caught up in man box culture. I find the whole thing just so fascinating. I mean, dominance is what the mega authoritarians love about men like Trump, right? Like they don't really care about the national debt, if it's good or bad. Their leader can say one thing one day and the complete opposite the next, and they don't care about the hypocrisy. It doesn't matter. The question is, does this person have power and are they using it to dominate others? Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? Well, you do now. And these kind of germs on your bedding can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses. Plus, it's just gross. Which is why I'm pleased to tell you that Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent up to 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. Miracle Made sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are also incredibly comfortable and luxurious without the high price tag of other luxury brands. But go see for yourself. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and try it out today or gift it for someone this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40% off by using the promo code politicsgirl at checkout. And you will also get three free towels and save an extra 20%, which is honestly a heck of a deal. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free towels and save over 40%. 
Again, that is trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself or a friend or a loved one to great sheets this holiday season. For those of you who don't know, I have a super rare lung disease. Although scarring in my lungs is where the disease originates, it's my heart that's actually affected. So I know firsthand how important heart health is to your body, which is why I'm pleased to be talking about Humans Super Beat Heart Chews. Super Beat Heart Chews is an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure and promote heart-healthy energy. They're plant-based and stimulant-free, so you get a green boost without all those jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beets are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Super Beets is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for cardiovascular health support, which makes it blood pressure support you can trust. If you find yourself drinking too many coffees or too many energy drinks just to keep your energy up, you can switch it to Super Beat Heart Chews, which are used by college athletes and pro sports teams to support performance and endurance. Double your potential with Super Beat Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beat Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and use the promo code POLITICSGIRL. That's getsuperbeats.com slash politics girl do you know that when your garbage gets picked up every week almost half of it is food waste food waste doesn't just stink up the kitchen it stinks up the planet with a ton of methane but now that we have a Lomi, it's changed the way we deal with food waste it's the biggest innovation in the modern day kitchen since the dishwasher Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into plant food in under four hours it's smart simple food recycling that fits almost every space perfectly you guys have seen my rants. My kitchen is not big, but I found room for the Lomi. We know the planet is facing a major crisis, so any steps we can take to limit our family's personal carbon footprint, we're going to do it. So instead of sending our kitchen waste to a landfill, we can help the environment and turn it into an all-natural fertilizer. And now, Lomi's new app lets me track my environmental impact, earn points for every cycle, and redeem for freebies from the Lomi and other great bands. If you guys are listening to the show, you know I love this machine. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact, have a cleaner kitchen, or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash politics girl and use the promo code politics girl to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash politics girl and use the code politics girl at checkout. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash politics girl and use the code politics girl at checkout. As always, thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. So I was talking to my friend's husband the other day, and he was telling me that he's been having trouble sleeping and was feeling miserable about it. And I was like, have you tried Beam Dream? Beam Dream powder is Beam's best-selling hot cocoa for sleep. It contains an all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. In fact, a recent clinical study showed that Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. You just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and drink it at bedtime. Plus, my husband's been using it for a while, so we can truly recommend it. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health, which is why having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable and why we feel so absolutely wrecked when we don't get enough of it. 
Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious seasonal flavors like cinnamon cacao, sea salt caramel, and white chocolate peppermint. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for limited time when you go to shopbeam.com beat. The discount is auto-applied at checkout, so no code is necessary. That's shopbeam.com slash B-E-A-T for up to 50% off. Beam Dream. Better sleep has never tasted better. Hey, so let's stop cutting down trees to make toilet paper. Did you know that we cut down tens of thousands of trees every day just to supply America with toilet paper? Well, we do. And wouldn't it be great if we could just stop? Well, we can with real paper. Real paper is 100% bamboo. So they're using a plant that grows fast, can be harvested and regenerated like grass in a lawn, and doesn't impact entire ecosystems of forests. Plus, real paper is the best kind of eco-friendly because it doesn't feel like you have to sacrifice something to help the earth. I am a full-blown toilet paper snob. I like all the fancy, plushy, aloe-infused goodness, and real does not feel like a downgrade. In fact, with the convenience of it delivered right to my door and the knowledge that I'm making an environmental impact, it feels like an upgrade. Real paper is also partnered with One Tree Planted, so every box of real that you buy helps fund reforestation efforts. So while your regular toilet paper cuts down trees, real paper is actively helping to replant them. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for a one-time purchase on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl and sign up for a subscription by using my code politicsgirl at checkout, you will automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl or enter the promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. Let's make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real. It's paper for the planet. The question is, does this person have power and are they using it to dominate others? You know, like is, like Abbott and DeSantis dominating women or gay people or sending asylum seekers on planes to cold climates just to own the libs. You know, like they don't care that's a waste of their taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. They care that it was a massive dick move, like a bully move, yep. and they love it. And we could see the bully on full display when Trump was running in 2016. And as you say, he gave every single person a schoolyard nickname, like an old fashioned Lil Marco and, you know, low energy Jeb and all that kind of stuff. And you have said, and I think it's so essential. If somebody in that 2016 debate stage, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, whoever had just walked over to Trump and punched him in the face on national television, Trump would never have succeeded. He would have collapsed like a house of cards. He would have. Yeah, because they did it, right? They took it. They took it, and then Trump looked like the winner, and then he became the president because of it. It was basic domination culture in action where bully determines your status and everyone else falls in line. And like they said, they don't want to like be like, hey, bro, like don't make that rape joke. It's not it's not really that funny. And everyone's like, come on, Brian. Like, like you don't want that, right? So you've said that the GOP has now become this full 
domination-based political culture where every existing understanding of political decorum that we used to have no matter how assaulted it's been by, you know, say Fox News or Russia yeah, yeah. it went right out the window when Trump came on the scene. And then there's this now this connection between this domination culture of masculinity mm-hmm. and extremism, right? So now we have white nationalism and Christian nationalism and racism and sexism and religious intolerance. And it all kind of comes back to this appetite for domination that in some ways we bred into ourselves in this culture. Yeah, what's really important to notice is the way in which we train boys out of connection. Beginning at age four, we say, what are you a sissy? What are you a girl? 